everyone, and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. Joining me today is Steph Yang from The Athletic. Steph, it's good to have you back on the show. It's been a while, and it's been quite a week. Uh, how have you been doing? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's really a loaded relying, question. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> relying on those emotional support networks. You know, talking to friends, trying to find happy moments where you can. It's it's really all you can do. You just try to keep a balance and, and keep moving forward. So, you know, a week Yes, indeed. Well, Steph is here to discuss the developing story regarding the NWSL, Paul Riley, and her latest piece, How the Structure of Sports Protects Abusers from Power. Uh, it's been a week since, or roughly a week since uh, Meg's article first came out, or the article in The Athletic. Um, we saw the protest last night from the players. Uh, I, I do want to get into kind of everything that's been happening, but first, was that a, a, a big moment for you? Do you feel like that could represent a turning point in the way the players are sort of organizing and responding to all the stories? I'm not sure it's a turning point because mm-hmm. we've seen this level of organization from them, you know, honestly throughout this whole thing. But, you know, it was certainly maybe one of the most emotionally impactful moments. I think the like the players after the game, they kind of let it be known they would not be taking any soccer questions if any of them did speak. They wanted specifically to talk about this. They were like don't don't shy away from it. Don't, you know, uh, or telling their media people maybe like don't <laughs> disallow questions. This is the only thing that we want to talk on. And even though they did agree to talk on it because they agreed it was important, a lot of them were really emotional about it. Mm-hmm. Kind of on the verge of tears a couple of times. It felt like Megan Klingenberg had, and, and Imani Dorsey in particular, those are some of the ones that I sat in on. It was it was three games, so uh, like five Zooms, I think. North Carolina didn't have one. Maybe understandably, the players are the closest to it. They're very sensitive. But, you know, Megan Klingenberg and Imani Dorsey in particular, it was just really hard to sit with that. You know, and and they they threw it together pretty quickly, honestly. But I think that's indicative of the level of planning that they've they're 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 highly motivated, you know, (laughs) to to get it done. And I think that being the most emotional one and the player statements after the games you know, where they talked pretty deeply about their feelings and just their desire to move forward and be transparent with the league. You you can read all the demands that they wrote on the Universal Players Association Twitter and their website, but I'm I'm not going to say turning point, but I think mm-hmm. it certainly added a huge boost of momentum to where they want to go moving forward. Let me ask this then. It does seem like from your article, from your reporting, from Meg's reporting, that there has been a kind of persistent culture of silence and maybe an intimidation behind that. Do you feel like some of the responses, some of the kind of openness in the responses is in reaction to that, that maybe that has that bubble has been pierced a little bit? Yeah, I think so. Um, Certainly, there was a culture of fear. Uh, Monashim definitely kind of put her finger directly on it when she said at the Portland Thorns, you know, when she came out, mm-hmm. she says that Gavin Wilkinson called her into an office and said, we don't talk about that here. Like we don't talk about our private lives. And so even if that's not directly related to the harassment, it sets the tone right for the culture. And I think that's something that you can kind of find corollaries to that all over. In addition to things that, you know, Kling has said also where it's like, They've been conditioned to believe they can lose it all at any second. So I think they're tired of that. Kayla Sharple today from Chicago Red Stars, just now before you and I got on the on the phone together, said, um, you know, I I I keep seeing comments about burning the league, burning down the league, and that's not the answer. Um, they're talking because they want to save the league. Mm-hmm. They want to save their jobs. If the league disappears, that's what, two hundred and fifty odd players who are suddenly and completely out of work. Um 
So yeah, I think they they're talking because they've found, you know, some collective agency here. I don't want to discount the the help that the players association being an actual union now with an executive director and some leadership has has provided a role here. Um you know, when you don't have any bargaining power, even if you're, you know, all talking to each other, what can you do individually when it's a system that's pressing you? So, yeah, I think there's a lot of factors here as to why they spoke up. I think we need to keep listening to the players. I think they're going to keep talking. And I think we also need to be mindful of the emotional cost. Because even though the players did all talk after the games, um, in every single one, they reminded us that this has been hard. It's been really hard. And it's had to be hard in public for a lot of them. And that's that's the price that they're paying for speaking up on this topic. So I have some more questions for you about where we go from here, about what the players would like to see happen. Honestly, what you would like to see happen. But first, th- there is that like the burn it all down response that I've seen. I, I don't agree with that either, but I understand kind of where it's coming from. For listeners who have missed some of the stories can you take us through the most recent scandals? I hate that I have to say the most recent scandals uh, <laughs> involving Gotham FC, the Washington Spirit, uh, obviously Paul Riley, maybe Racing Louisville, and maybe Oil Rain if you want to. Such is the list. Right. Um, Gotham FC, Elise LaHue, general manager, is dismissed. Um, it's not publicly clear why. Um just that there was a complaint filed about her under the league's anti-harassment policy and whatever that they found was enough for Gotham to dismiss her at Louisville head coach Christy Holly was dismissed for cause. That was a big one that Louisville just sprung on us. And last night, actually Michelle Betos addressed that she was asked directly, you know, are you ready to talk about anything Christy Holly may have done? She said, we're not ready to talk about that yet, but she said that, you know, when the, when there was a complaint that the club took action, and that the players do feel protected there. Um, anyway, at, at Louisville in particular, um, Washington Spirit, where to begin? Uh, Richie Burke, the head coach, alleged to have verbally, mentally abused his players with uh, used racially inappropriate language, including the N-word. Kaya McCullough, who was a player drafted there, you know, talked to the Washington Post. It's an incredible article, and there's been a lot of fallout from that that is continuing to this day, um, reverberating up to the ownership level most recently culminating in the managing partner, Steve Baldwin, resigning, um, although the players are not happy about it. The the Spirit players released a, a public statement saying, Steve, you need to sell the team to one of the other owners. Why, Michelle Kang? Um, let's see. Where do we need to go next? I guess we could talk Paul Riley for a moment. Sure. I guess we could talk Paul Riley for a moment. So I was uh, out of town last week. I, I saw the story on the athletic feed. I read the story on the plane and then I reread it on the plane. While my, and my wife looked over at me and was basically like, what what has happened? And I was like, I, I, I don't like know. Like it was because Paul Riley is a person who I've never met. I've never spoken to. But you kind of see the coverage of him and, and it's all very glowing about what he's done for the women's game and for for like, coaching in the women's game. And and to hear about how he was basically behind the scenes manipulating and grooming and coercing, it it really messed me up a lot. I'm going to assume it it it, it bothered you uh, much more than it bothered me because like it's it's that's a person that I'm guessing you've had interactions with in the past. What like were there ever rumors of this? Were there rumblings of his activities that you had heard of, or was it all sort of like out of like basically all of a sudden made known? 
I had never heard anything like specific about Paul Riley. Um, I would bet that the players had spoken amongst themselves um, because they, they do talk to each other and it's that whisper network where they try to trade information and, and maybe do their best to keep each other informed. But, you know, as we said earlier, before there was a union individually, what can you do except pull someone aside and tell them, Hey, just, just be on the lookout for this. You know, Um, if you don't feel like you can go to your coach or the trainers, the owners, and that's clearly what the players, you know, both at the Washington spirit, and at the North Carolina Courage felt, what can you do except, yeah, kind of look out for each other on the individual level and then go home and cry and try to take care of your mental health the best that you can on your own. Um, so, so yeah, the, I, I don't think that I personally had not heard anything. And then it, it really took um, a really concerted effort, a really organized effort from Monashinade I mean, uh, Monashem, Sinead Fairley, you know, with a little assist from Alex Morgan and months of investigation from my colleague Meg at The Athletic to, to get this story over the finish line. And what has been the response since then? Because you go back and you look at like news reports from the day the story comes out or the day after, and there's a lot of talk of, say, Lisa Baird's initial response. And then Lisa Baird, since then, no longer in her position. Uh, what have been some of the other developments? Well, the league has a three-person kind of committee in place right now um, to oversee things in the interim. Although I think a lot of the names that are coming up here aren't exactly inspiring a ton of confidence. One of them is Amanda Duffy. You might remember her. as She was previously kind of in charge of the league. She was never technically commissioner as an oh, yeah. interesting little NWSL, like, you know, the league where things are just weird. A lot of times. Um, yeah, so we've got Amanda Duffy, we've got Sophie Savage from OL Rain, and we've got Angie Long, who's one of the owners from Kansas City, sitting on a committee kind of steering the league right now. Um, we've got at least five different investigations going on or announced that I'm aware of, maybe one more. There's like US Soccer, NWSL, uh, Safe Sport, FIFA. I think the Thorns said maybe they wanted to do hire their own investigator or something. And that's a little concerning because with so many different investigations, it feels like things are going to get diluted or pulled in different directions. Mm -hmm. And maybe the buck is just going to get passed around and around and around. It's a little concerning, but we are kind of at a, okay, let's see what happens stage on that front. How much transparency is there when it comes to these types of investigations in your experience and, and sort of how much are we expecting to learn from them? I don't think there originally was planned to be a ton of uh, transparency, at least between the league and fans or the league uh -huh. and media. But what we did see last night, which was very interesting, was among the Players Association's demands is they want, you know, a high level of transparency between the league and the players association when it comes to the results of any of these investigations, whether it's currently ongoing ones, investigations that are going to be opened up again to look into um, past incidents or any investigations in the future. And they also had this thing that they called, I think, a, a step back policy, where if an investigation is opened up into a club, um, the general manager, the coach or whoever is in charge at that time is required to recuse themselves or step back essentially or go on or be like temporarily suspended until the investigation is over um, is, is one of the things that they're asking for. So they're really trying to put in place 
um, I would say structural uh, uh, safeguards here for for future investigations. It's sad to think that there might have to be future investigations, but I think they're just, you know, they, they've said pretty sharply they don't ever want this to have to happen again. So, like, since we're talking about the possibility of future investigations, I'd like to spend some time uh, with your article. Uh, it really is an amazing piece of work. I thought, like, the reporting, the, the, the coverage of what happened in the reporting by Meg w- was pretty uh, incredible. But I, your piece really, like, I, I kind of finished it and sat there for a while and then went back and reread it again. Because I think, you, for me at least, like, I hear about, like, these moments, you hear about these individual stories and individual scandals and it feels like it's, you know, it's it's bad apples, uh, forgetting mm-hmm. the rest of that saying. It's it's just individual moments. It's like one person kind of corrupting the system when it feels much more like maybe the system itself is a little bit corrupted or a lot bit corrupted. So if possible, can you give listeners a sort of uh, summary of what you found or, or the kind of key points of that article? Sure. Um, so it was a companion piece to Meg's because we were saying that this is systemic and we wanted people to understand what we meant when we said systemic to you know to encompass the system um and i talked to uh, a former NWSL player and some experts who research trauma and abuse in sports in order to get a more you know holistic picture of of how how does this happen how does it keep happening because you know we just did the recap of like coaches gms like the, we ran down a huge list of people this season alone um, who have had to be dismissed or who are under investigation for, at the very least, inappropriate behavior. Last week, we had another one, um, Craig Harrington. I mean, last year, we had another one. Craig Harrington from the Utah Royals was, you know, had to part ways from the team after an investigation and allegations of improper comments. So, you know, if, if, it's, if it keeps happening... We wanted to know the reason and I wanted to pull together something more coherent because I think we can all kind of rattle off a few reasons off the top of our heads. And the things that came out were that, you know, this is something that happens because of there's a power hierarchy anywhere. There is a power hierarchy. There's probably going to be people who want to take advantage of that power hierarchy. So it's not just sports. We've seen things like the church abuse scandal here in the United States, the Boy Scouts abuse scandal, um, that sort of thing. It's the the system of power itself is attractive to people who want to take advantage of that. And then specific to soccer, there are obviously specific things that happen. Um, well, the one thing I kept coming back to was that it starts at youth soccer. Mm-hmm. It starts early where players are really conditioned to just say yes, coach, no coach, to accept authority, to accept that in sports, certain behaviors that are only appropriate outside of sports, essentially on like the family or very close friend level become, you know, normalized or appropriate in sports. For example, certain kinds of touching, you know, you think about how often coaches pat players on areas of the body where if you were in the workplace, you'd be like, I don't think you should touch me like that. You know, Jake from accounting. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Jake, Jake definitely should not. You're, I think it's also that I read this while there was like maybe an NFL game on and it was halftime and the coach just ran back to the locker room and smacked every single player on the butt. And that like, seems it's just like you're conditioned to think like, yeah, yeah, that's what happens. That's what a coach does. And then you think about it, like taking a step back as I did and thinking like, why? (laughs) Like, that's not what a boss does. And when a boss does that, it's almost a joke. It's a joke in a movie about how weird the boss is. And yet it kind of becomes an accepted part of coaching, which uh, kind of threw me for a loop. 
Yeah. And then not to go back to Richie Burke, um, mm-hmm. but, you know, he he got caught on camera at a game um, slapping a player on the behind and he just seemed to think nothing of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's just telling that this was something maybe he didn't know the camera was on him, but this is a public game. All mm-hmm. the players and all the fans can see him and he just thought nothing of it to just tap the player in, you know, a, a bathing suit area, essentially. And yeah, that's what we mean when we talk about it's normalized. People may be doing things that they don't consciously think like, oh, I'm doing something wrong um, or, or you know, survivors thinking what's happening to me is wrong. It really is normalized. They just think, well, that's how it is. You mentioned the Boy Scouts. You mentioned the church scandal. All of those sort of involving like youths, young people and sort of the grooming that goes along with it. Uh, in the article, you talked about the four steps abusers usually take with victims in a sports context. Uh, can you break that down here? Yeah. So that was something that I found in my research. Um, I, I found a, a group called the Anne Craft Trust, their program run out of the University of Nottingham, and they work in safeguarding over in the, the UK and England and I think Wales. And, you know, they also work in adult safeguarding. And so I just want to be clear that these are steps that can happen to people at any age. It's not mm-hmm. just kids, even though, you know, that's some of where the normalizing begins in soccer. So the ones that they listed were first, you target a potential victim. Then you build up trust and friendship with them. Then you develop isolation, control, and loyalty between, you know, you and your target. And then you initiate the abuse and you secure secrecy. And, you know, whenever you read cases of abuse, a lot of times you see that list and you think, check, 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 check. Do you think then that it needs to be reflected in the way we're training coaches and the coaching licensing process? Because I think about when I went through uh, like getting my coaching, my, my one coaching license, and it's not really a thing you're taught. It really, you're taught to have interactions with the players. You're taught to sort of make them feel comfortable, to make them feel encouraged. And I think a lot of that does end up being like physical contact, as you mentioned, and even like, like just like grabbing a Jersey to like pull a person over two two yards. Like we see coaches do that all the time. And I wonder, do, do you have an idea of if the, maybe the licensing needs to reflect that if there needs to be sort of awareness in the coaching about like the levels of physical contact that coaches are sort of consciously aware that they're making? Yeah, I think within coaching circles is an area where there can be huge progress because, you know, the experts I talked to, they also talked about how, sure, survivors can advocate for themselves, but the people in power are not going to listen to them. What they're going to listen to is either their peers or people who have more power than them within the system, um, which is kind of a sad fact, but true. And I think it's super important within coaching circles for other coaches to say, hey, these are things that we need to do. These are things we need to learn. Um, you know, and I think coaching curriculums need to start integrating a lot more modern child education methods. There needs to be a lot more discussion about, you know, positive teaching methods versus, you know, negative screaming yeah. and yelling. There needs to all be a lot more oversight. I think everybody, U.S. soccer clubs, you know, ASO, ECNL, every organization needs to be willing to just kind of grit their teeth and admit like as part of the training, we also need to include training to coaches about like what is appropriate and inappropriate behavior, whether or not it makes people uncomfortable, like let them be uncomfortable. It's Mm -hmm. something that you just have to tear off the bandaid and speak openly about. 
you you do because I I think about again going back to like how I was coached the way I was taught to play and it was a lot of like you make sacrifices for the team you do as the coach instructs you if you are doing what the coach asks you to do uh, like then you're going to get more playing time and even I remember my parents telling me and I and I think this is probably true that if the coach is is screaming at you it means the coach it means the coach cares if the coach isn't yelling at you then it means that they're not trying to coach you anymore and I think about how much we're kind of taught to just go along with that and that's just part of coaching that's what it has to be and how that can lead to if you spend your your whole life being yelled at by a a coach figure by this authority figure and you're taught that that is how what that's what's supposed to happen if you want to get better it makes me wonder if we need to be kind of focusing on how to teach the next generation that being a good teammate also means sort of staying true to your individual values if you feel like the coach is asking you to do something that that you don't understand to be able to say, coach, I don't know why I'm supposed to do that as opposed to like, yes, coach, I'll do that right away. Do you think we need to teach that level of kind of individual accountability while we're teaching, be a good teammate and do as the coach says? Yeah. Um, Maybe like accountability the, is the wrong word, but the right. individual thought, I guess. With the caveat that like the responsibility of a course rests on the people with the power, right? But sure. there are things that, like you said, we can teach players in order to help protect themselves more. And this is, um, you know, I talked to Rachel Wood, who used to be one of the Boston Breakers, and she now runs her own training program and she works with uh, girls from, you know, of all ages. And part of the things that she does teach them are like, here are some warning signs that you need to look for. And, you know, in general, teaching them, it's it's not OK for your coach or any adult to talk to you in certain ways. Like you're a person. You have rights. You're not just a, a machine that kicks a ball. You know, that is that that counts towards somebody's win loss ratio. You're a person in your own right. And I think that's really uh, a crucial part. Um, I think parents also need this education, not to bag on your parents, because, but, you know, that's one of the examples of how parents. Yeah, it's one of the examples of how parents can become complicit with these patterns because, you know, some of them, they just want the best for their kids, right? And so they also have this mindset of like, oh, I got to listen to the expert in the situation, the coach, and the coach is going to make my kid a better player, and then they'll get to the national team or whatever. Or they just don't know what to look for. Sometimes they actively turn the other way. And then when your own parents can't advocate for you, you as a child, a player of any age, who can you actually turn to in that case? If the person who's supposed to protect you the most doesn't understand or doesn't want to understand what's happening to you. So I think that's an important avenue that education has to happen at. And, you know, there needs to be a lot of much stronger oversight at clubs. It also has to come down to like club directors and other people because, you know, it, the same thing happens at the youth level where maybe a coach will um, start abusing players sometimes to the point where even the parents are like, I don't want my child to be coached by this person. And then what happens, the club director is just like, well, thanks for your service and lets them move on to another job, which is also the pattern we saw at NWSL with Paul Riley. So there are a lot of groups here where everybody has to take responsibility for understanding their part in the ecosystem. And and my quick understanding of Paul Riley with Portland was that he was investigated, it seems like fired, but then also not that really wasn't disclosed. Maybe the report was sent to his next employer, but we don't really know what was in the report. And he ends up getting a job, what, five months later? Yeah, um, he goes over to the Western New York Flash, I believe, um, Mm -hmm. defunct team because they eventually became the North Carolina Courage. But, you know, (laughs) 
the the Thorns uh, or the Portland organization as a whole with Merritt Paulson kind of released a statement saying, yeah, we did the investigation, but then we didn't tell anybody and we're sorry um, and kind of sort of an excuse like we couldn't tell people we want to protect the players' privacy and blah, blah, blah. And I think that relates back to what we said at the top about, you know, players speaking out now. It's like, no, 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 no. Don't hide behind our privacy. We're talking. You don't have an excuse not to talk. Um, and I understand sometimes there might be issues of legality about disclosing, but <laughs> there's got to be a way to legally protect people. Like if you knew you had an abuser, someone who caused harm in your system, surely there's some legal like avenue to because you have some kind of duty of care to your players. Like if you knowingly hire somebody who was fired for, you know, X, Y, Z reason, then you're culpable as well. Although that may contribute to this system of not knowing, right? It's like, if I don't know, I can't be held legally liable. You does know? it make it, does it make it harder than for you, like you personally, Steph, to, to enjoy this league, to enjoy the, like maybe not the players, but the people who are running it, the people who are coaching it. It, it just feels like, like not the same at all, but like, or I guess, in some ways similar like Cristiano Ronaldo signing for Manchester United which is my favorite club makes me like less excited to root for that team it makes me mm-hmm. not really want to talk about them in glowing and positive ways and I, I imagine for you it would be difficult to then talk about NWSL talk about the players and as we move on if you do end up having to interact with Merritt Paulson I, I wonder like is is that sort of a thing that you're having to deal with a challenge that you're having to already start thinking about Maybe it's splitting hairs, but I never got joy from this, from that side of the the whole thing, you know. The joy that I derived from this was it's all player-driven, and I think the players are understanding, like, they are the product here. Without them, the league doesn't exist. There's no games, and, you know, that's kind of where I find my joy. Like, last night, Savannah McCaskill scored a banger. <laughs> man and i and i remembered for a moment how good it feels to enjoy yeah. soccer the sport and the players like <laughs> have you ever seen that meme where it's like four squares and they're like thank you so much and then in one square it's like not you but <laughs> yes, the rest. Yeah. i was like i i love soccer so much like not you the owners <laughs> and the coaches but like that oh that mccaskill banger it was so beautiful and then Christine Sinclair had this really lovely uh, one touch in off of a cross, even though the Thorns ultimately ended up losing RIP. But, you know, it felt really good to love soccer again yeah. last night. And I think the players um, kind of want that too, right? Uh, for example, Mark Parsons said that the players told him that they need to play. And it reminded me of something. I had this call with FIFA Pro to discuss, you know, the from the player union, player protection aspect. And Sarah Gregorius, who's a, a former football fern, um, was talking about how, you know, if there's a work stoppage or a strike or, or if the player's just refusing to play, that's when you know it's serious. Because at this level, that's their raison d'etre. These people like soccer's their whole life. And if they're willing to not do it for a reason, you had better listen. Is that like, I, I feel like that's kind of baked into part of the problem, though, that this is their their whole way of life, their whole way of being. But it's also, at least until recently, one of the only leagues in the world where you could still make money such as it is and be a professional uh, women's soccer player. Like, like, do you think that as we have more transparency, maybe that leads to more money? Is there a positive, is there a possible sort of silver lining that with the 
intense scrutiny that I feel like the league is now about to come under that maybe we come away from this with a stronger union, with stronger player protections, and maybe it becomes a more productive league? Or am I just pie in the sky dreaming too much? No, I think absolutely multiple players last night talked about how, you know, through the CBA process, they're going to try to implement stronger protections for players. Michelle Betos was very firm on, you know, how through the CBA process, they're trying to put into place lots and lots of protections, whether that's free agency or the procedures around vetting any kind of hire or the procedures for investigations and recusing yourself. And Megan Klingenberg also said like, some of the little joy that she's been able to find is that it looks like there's, there could be light at the end of the tunnel that they're moving forward, that things are changing. So, you know, it's not all gloom and doom. And I think you had a point, Amani Dorsey had something important on that point about, you know, soccer being their whole eyes being used against them. She said, um, uh, you know, soccer is their joy, but just because it's our joy that has been taken advantage of for way too long. And so I think, now it's it's important to support the players association here um to really back the the players union because they are the ones who are in the best place to advocate for themselves now and they're the ones who know best what's going to materially make their lives better both in the short and the long term i i want to like try to end on a positive but first i have <laughs> a few more questions about the front offices because I think one thing that I keep being confused by, and maybe the answer is just the obvious answer, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Why do these clubs think they can just cover it up once people start asking questions? The spirit think saying Richie Burke is moving to the front office is enough to distract people. Is it a lack of like consistent media attention? Are they just not used to being in the spotlight? What do you think it is that makes teams think, eh, we can just kind of move on, sidestep this one, no big deal? There's a lot of factors. I think one of the the one you mentioned is one of them, not consistent media attention. I mean, I know a lot of people, a lot of players, especially, have been like ESPN or whatever big outlet. Like now, you decide to pay attention. It's it's what always happens whenever something bad happens in women's soccer. Like when WPS collapsed, suddenly everybody wanted to cover the collapse, and it was like, where were you before? If you had been paying attention to us for three years before this, maybe we would not have collapsed in the first place. You know, and then. I think another part of it is it's the macrocosm of what we talked about where Richie Burke pats a player in an inappropriate area in the wide open where he doesn't even think to himself, oh, maybe that's a bad thing that I should not do. I mean, I don't know a thought process, but that's that's what it seems like it, it is if he's doing it right there in the middle of the game in front of everybody and God, you know. Um, there's a sense of like normalized, like this is the way it's always been. And if we can just kind of smooth it over, um, and get people to ignore it long enough, it'll go away. And they have all the power and, you know, power is a hell of a drug. And that owner class, I think it's a lot of people who in general are used to getting their way. So yeah, a lot of factors. And I hope that this increased scrutiny has put a lot of them on notice. And that I think ties into uh, Gavin Wilkinson, who you mentioned earlier. And this is another question that, like, I apologize if it's indelicate, but it's the only way I can kind of think to ask it is him telling Manashim, like, don't don't really talk about yourself in public. Don't talk about your sexuality in public seemed very strange to me because I, I guess I had this idea of the NWSL is if you're creating a women's league where, you know, there are many openly out players where you have many LGBTQ plus players that you would sort of that would be part and parcel in the DNA of the league that it would be like, yeah, we, we know we've got players from all different walks of life from all different backgrounds. And so kind of 
talk about yourself, talk about who you are. And that creates, I think, probably more buzz, more people can connect to the team. So it seemed so strange. It basically seemed like at odds with the idea of the league, which makes me think that I have misunderstood the idea of the league. (laughs) The players tend to um, have some progressive voices among them, that's for sure. But I think we need to remember that these teams still have owners who are part of an ownership class and (laughs) not to bring like Karl Marx into this or anything like that. But I think we need to realize like the owners are still mostly white, rich American, you know, business people. um, And they have their own interests here. And sometimes that runs counter to, you know, players being progressive and talking about progressive issues, whether that's sexuality or race or, you know, economic privilege, that sort of thing. Um, I mean, (laughs) there was a guillotine outside of one of the uh, Portland Thorns or the the Portland protests, you know, and I think that's kind of, um, uh, I'm absolutely not endorsing the terrors, (laughs) like the the whole French (laughs) Revolution part, not endorsing that part, but I think it's emblematic of like the class differences that people are feeling here that intersect with, you know, the identities at play, for example, you know, being uh, a woman or being not straight or being not white, you know, things like that. Um, so I think it's it's not a surprise when you remember that the owners are a bunch of rich people, right? And rich people yeah. will look at their money first. Yeah, I, I think it's just that when you think at NWSL, I don't think like, at least right now in its present incarnation, I don't think of a league where, where people are getting involved to make a ton of money. And so I think I always assumed that if you're buying a team, if you're running a club, if you're owning them, the idea there is you're doing it because you support the players, you support the game, you want to grow the women's game. And again, I, I'm wondering if I'm just naive, but it just it doesn't seem like you're jumping into NWSL to to make millions and raking in money hand over fist. It seems like you're doing it because it's a labor of love, at least right now. And and again, I think it's just that's where the you're you're probably right. You probably are right that the like it is the owner class. It just seems at odds with the players that those people are employing and the lives of those people that they're supposed to care about. So it just continues to make me scratch my head a bit. Yeah, I I, I don't want to discount that some owners or some members of ownership groups maybe are in this for quote unquote the right reasons, right? But I, I also want to be careful about skating too close to the idea that women's sports are like a charity or yeah. a cause mm-hmm. because that is what's got us into trouble before in the in the larger landscape of women's soccer and, and women's sports. And I think there does have to be a little bit of that coming in here because we have to acknowledge the reality that women are not treated equally or non-men are not treated equally, at least, you know, for the purposes of our conversation in U.S. society, particularly within the the culture of sports. Um, but at the same time, you know, you can't have someone coming in being like, yeah, of course, I'm going to sink three to five million dollars a year into this hole just because it's the right thing to do. Like that is not an investor, right, that you want yeah. in this league that that person like has doesn't have the sense that you need to help grow the product um so yeah it it is more complicated than just like rich people bad but (laughs) i (laughs) i i think that it's it is part of the analysis that needs to happen i want to stick with the idea of like it's not a charity for a moment because you're right that is kind of how i was phrasing that and and that's not what i meant to do but it is i think a part and parcel of how we get here is that if you create this idea that like 
there's nowhere else to go. Like, what else are you going to do? It does sort of lend to a sense that these players are trapped. A question we get all the time is, how can I support the players? How can I support the league? Do you have thoughts on on ways fans, supporters, people who want to get involved can go about? Is it like we often say, like, support the sponsors and then tell the sponsors why you're supporting them? Buy merchandise, go to games if you live in the area. Uh, any other ideas for how people can kind of get involved or, or help out? Um. I I think that um, we probably should look to the players um, mm-hmm. bringing into like this this Kayla Sharples statement once again that um, she's talking about we have to rebuild and move toward a better future you know for the fan to the next generation of players who want to play um, I think that organized action is probably going to be a lot more effective than individual action although you know if you're just one person. You could probably do things like calling your ticket rep or, you know, writing to your local representative or something to make them aware of the situation. I think something like what the the Portland supporters group, so that's um, Riveters, Timbers Army, 170ist, who got together and said, we're going to do a boycott of all Providence Park concessions and official team merchandise is maybe something. I would suggest go to your local supporters group and ask, hey, what are we doing as a group here? Because I think we're seeing that collective voices are going to make a lot more waves than individual voices here. And for the players moving forward, is there a league you think or a model that we should be looking towards for how to kind of make sure there are better player protections in place? We have the union. Do they need a better CBA? Is the WNBA the model to go off of? What do you think about that? I think the WNBA is one leader in the space that they can look to, um, you know, if if not to look at their CBA, at least to look at the power of player action. The whole thing with the spirit and the players making that statement about like, sell the team, Steve, I was reminded of Atlanta when the players were actively campaigning mm-hmm. for uh, Kelly Leffler's opponent. Um, yeah. Reverend Warnock um, during that whole election cycle. And, you know, Steve Baldwin doesn't have a political opponent that they can all campaign for, but it, it's kind of the same vibe, right? Where the players are basically an open revolt against an owner. And that's what it reminded me of, of, of them banding together because like, that's that's the ethos of a strike, right? Or a union. It's like, okay, one of us is vulnerable, but all of us together hold the power because the business doesn't exist without us. And then for you, as we move away from this story for a moment, like who are the players that you're just excited to get to watch more of, to get to see score those goals <laughs> that you mentioned? Like if people want to start getting into NWSL a bit more or are looking for a team to support, uh, are, are, is there a team that you find particularly engaging? I mean, I'm, I I really found a new team to root for in in Gotham. (laughs) I really like this team a lot just because it's it's a lot of likable players from top to bottom. Um, but they are sitting in eighth on the table. (laughs) But I think if you want to find a team with engaging players on and off the field, that's one that I would recommend not to be a total homer because they have some incredible forwards between Mitch Purse, Ify Anumanu, um, Evelyn Vien. They have some really interesting, uh, defenders with Amani Dorsey and Caprice Didasco. They have one of the most interesting midfielders for, you know, my opinion in the league in Jen Cujo, even though she's not getting a ton of playing time recently. Um, and also that eighth place spot is, is pretty tight because they're on 26 points. Washington's on 27, Orlando's on 28 and the top six teams get into the playoffs 
And the difference between eight and six is two points. So if you want to get into NWSL right now is probably an exciting time to do so for the on-field product. And Steph, if people want to read more from you, have you got more stuff coming out? Or if you do, where can they find it? I'm over at The Athletic. I'm at Thrace on Twitter. And yeah, we are still updating our live blog of the original reporting. It's probably the longest running live blog now on The um, on the Athletic, but stuff keeps happening. So yeah, that's where you can find me. I'm sure this is not how it is, but I do picture somebody from The Athletic sitting up all hours of the night waiting to update that one. Like I hope Pablo... Is, is has like the midnight to 6 a.m. shift and is just sitting there with, with bloodshot eyes waiting for more news to come in. You're actually not far off from reality. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that makes me happy. All right. Well, can we, like best of luck to Pablo. Uh, Steph, thank you so much for, for being here and for talking about all the many topics. I know it's it cannot be enjoyable, but it was very uh, nice to have you here, and I really appreciate your taking the time. Yeah, not enjoyable, but really necessary. So thank you for talking about it.